What's happening? Nothing. Waking Brian early up on a Wednesday morning. Yeah, it's uh, it's early for you, man. What time is it? For oh, seven thirty. He, he, he's still sleeping. <laughs> Caffeine's yeah. <laughs> still kicking in. I can tell, man. All right. Well, then uh, here's what we'll do. I'm gonna I'm gonna just kind of lay out what we're gonna talk about. Uh, one, I want to get to know you guys a little bit better for myself and for everyone else. And I think then, you've known us for like four years now. It's It's been a minute, yeah. <laughs> um, two, I want to talk about um, scaling operations. I want to talk about this, uh, this new service model that Brian's got going on. Uh, I want to talk about pricing and um, just all kinds of stuff, okay? So I want to just kind of start off with Brian, because uh, this will be a great way to wake you up. Brian, what is the name of your company? Uh, iTech Solutions out of San Luis Obispo, California. All right. And you're the CEO, I assume is the title you're giving yourself? I mean, is anyone a, a true CEO and an MSP or are you wearing like a hundred other hats too? But yeah, CEO. Okay. And how long have you had your company operating? Since 2005. Good for you. And, uh, Shiva, your company? Continuum with a K, not the one with a C like ConnectWise. Okay. Been doing IT since early 2000, give or take. Uh, found MSP late in my life, back in 2017-ish, I want to say. Prior to that, just did pure bar stuff. Brian is inspiring me to uh, do a combination of the two that he'll get into later, I'm sure. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Cool. Now, I've had both of you guys on in the past as guests, but what I want to do, I'm, I want to get to know you guys better because I, I like you guys. I consider you friends and I just learned something today that completely new. So, uh, Shiva, um, you know, if we look at your name, you know, we, we can, uh, profile here and say you're probably of Indian descent, uh, but you're, you don't like consider India home or anything. So what, what does your background look like? Uh, grandparents and great grandparents, they went to the Caribbean as, I guess, indentured servants back in the early 1900s, just after slavery was abolished. So I call it a new form of slavery. And I was born in Canada and yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't consider myself Indian because I think I'm two, maybe three generations removed. Never been. And I don't know of any family that's over there. And, and like indentured servants, like you said, you, it's like a new form of slavery. I remember learning about it in, I don't know, grade school or something. Whenever, whenever they teach you about slavery and, and Lincoln and all that stuff. Right. Um, he made a really good tweet about it once. Um, but wow, Twitter's that old. <laughs> I hey, you know, I saw it on the internet, so it has to be true. That's so true. So I never really I never really looked into 
indentured slavery in, or indentured servantry uh, as an adult. It's one of those things where like it has popped in my mind a couple times. And then I, I think I'm going to look that up later when I'm bored and then squirrel. Uh, I, I even have ADD moments when I'm trying to procrastinate. It's that bad, guys. So how how bad is it? Like, do you have stories from family they don't talk about yeah, anything I think, like that? I, I don't have that many stories about it, but other than what we were taught in school, mm. um, I would liken it to what families try to live off of what minimum wages these days. I don't think it's much different. You're you're working to live. I don't think people live to work. Any, oh, I'm sorry. What is it? You're living to, to work. work or work to live. Yeah. When, when you live to work, that's when it's bad. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of people are stuck in right now. And Me too, man. My, my personal opinion is with inflation the way it is and, you know, the supply chain from our, the big C, which was COVID or is COVID, as well as what's going on geopolitically, I think, I think we're going to see a big economic contraction very soon. That's not going to be too uh, nice. And Brian's already paying what? Six, $7 a gallon for gas. Don't sign me. <laughs> was that Brian? Six, $7. I just went on a camping trip and paid a hundred dollars in gas there and a hundred dollars in gas on the way back. But let me ask you this. Did you enjoy yourself? I did. I spent the same amount of money it would have cost to stay in a nice hotel. But at least I got to walk out my front door and not have a hotel hallway. And that's that's where it counts. <laughs> he did probably have a little bit of running water in the camper, right? Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, they had full hookups. So, there you, go. you know, it's clamping. Yeah, I, I think if I were going to go camping, it would have to be in a camper. I did camping once as an adult with my wife, Nikki. And when, uh, when we went and did it, it was, I think it was after I started my MSP and a, a buddy of ours came and then like some, uh, some other friends came and the buddy ended up staying in like our tent. We had this giant tent. It was like me, Nikki, the dog and our buddy. And he ended up putting in his headphones and cranking them all the way. And my snoring was still cutting through. Uh, it was, it was an, it was an experience. Uh, I, I would be okay to never do camping again. I, I just remember, uh, we, we were floating down the river in one of those, like, uh, I, I think it was an inflatable raft. And it was one of those you rent from one of the campgrounds, like the big 12 person kind of raft. And it was me and it was, and this was, I was much skinnier back then. Like I was a hundred pounds less and it was me and two really big girls in this thing. Uh, and we, we just kept getting stuck and we had to walk the raft all the way back. It was, it was awful. So I've, I've got this whole, uh, this whole day where it was supposed to be like a one hour trip down the river, relaxing, enjoyable. I thought it was just supposed to be a 30 minute tour. Three hour tour. A three hour three tour. Hour. Sorry. Yeah. There you go. And then the weather started getting rough. 
because it hadn't rained, so the water level was really low. So the tiny ship was lost. <laughs> no, the tiny <laughs> ship just kept getting stuck on rocks. And what's what's even funnier is I started on a kayak, right? Okay. So I'm I'm on this kayak. I've never been on one before. So they like push it down the ramp, and then I my kayak hits the water, and I just flip. <laughs> No idea what I'm doing. So then, like, I'm like, well, now what? And they're like, I don't know. Turn it over and get back in. So now I've got an audience of all these people that are, like, waiting to get in the water in their ships or whatever you call these little things. And and so, like, I'm struggling to get myself up on. And then I'm, and then I'm finally in the kayak, and I'm going, and the kayak gets stuck on a rock. Like, that's how low the water is, guys. So now I'm stuck on a rock. I, I'm down far enough. Like I can still see and like shout to the people, but the water's, you know, taking me. So I, I get out of the kayak. I dislodge it. I, and then I start going again. And, uh, my kayak starts filling up with water and sinking. Apparently when I got it stuck on a rock, I put a big hole in it. Good thing it wasn't mine. So yeah, that entire day was a freaking nightmare i'll probably never go camping again and i'm okay with that ladies and gentlemen the name of this episode is steve's camping trip <laughs> <laughs> you know i've never named episodes it sounds like a good idea i just um, put a number before it yeah there so so brian you're from california and i'm gonna say uh i'm gonna throw you under the bus here you're in the minority I know that because everybody keeps voting against you and winning. So you've, you've just got that whole state is a mystery to me, especially like LA, like the things I hear on other podcasts about LA makes me never want to go there ever. Uh, yeah, I mean, the things keeping me here are basically the weather and family and friends. I guess my business, too, uh, although I could essentially do that remotely if I wanted. Um, mainly the weather. <laughs> I have a question for you. Do you even think an MSP needs a physical office anymore? Other than a place to maybe host meetings, have some inventory if needed, and stage. But, like, do you guys really think... A IT service I, provider needs a formal office for people to be in every day. I, I think with the right personalities on your staff and the right culture that's designed to stay in touch, even though you're not in the office every day, it can be done. I, I, I think the important thing is you don't want employees feeling like they're on an island, right? Like they're not mm -hmm. part of the team. And so, you know, we're, uh, you got, you know, Shiba group that I'm part of is pretty awesome. They've got like a Zoom thing that just runs all day. You could just pop into anytime you want, right? So if, if you had like that type of culture where it's like, hey, we've got this live Zoom channel, people on the team can pop in anytime they want. There's always someone on it, you know, and you kind of get that feeling that you are, even though you are all remote, you're kind of a more of a tight knit team, right? I, um, I would say that. That Zoom room got me through COVID sanely, or as sane as I could possibly be. 
Yeah. Otherwise, I'd be in here by myself for eight hours. Yeah. Talking to myself. And, you know, uh, having having something like that, you know, because because I I've got a Zoom room that I had running for years. That's where we got the idea from. I, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, you were in my Zoom room. Yeah. I mean, that's where we met, man. And uh, and I had it running for years. And, you know, there's there's good and bad with it. Right. You know, if, if you're not in a Zoom room all day long, you, you can, like, be productive because because when you're in a zoom room here here's where i struggled when i was just sitting with you guys in a zoom room i am a social butterfly so if there's people there that i can talk to i'm gonna do it i think when i was in your zoom room it was so new to me as a daily thing that i i don't want to speak for anybody else i didn't understand how to utilize it whereas Mm. now you know, I could be in that Zoom room all day, but for seven hours, I can be disconnected from audio doing my work. And then, you know, if I want to shoot the shit or I have a question, I can just pop in and say, hey, guys, what do you think about this? And I think back then, none of us really knew how to use it, right? You know, th- this was... It was new. It was the it, final frontier. It, it was it was something. It was, it was the wild oh, the TV show puns today. Oh, boy. So, um... So, so when we were in there, like, you know, for, for you now, you can, you can be in there, you can be disconnected, but maybe you're just disconnected from audio and maybe you'll leave the video running and it's, and it's a nice way to keep yourself accountable because if people see you're at your desk and you're on a phone call, like, you know, it's, it's cool to be like, oh, Hey, look, Shiva's busy. Yeah. Sorry. But when you sit there and, you know, Pick your nose in front of the camera. You know, that, that's a little uh, frustrating when you get busted doing that, right? But, but more importantly, when, when, you're, when you're not in the Zoom room, who are you accountable to other than yourself and all your clients? Because you have a... I don't think it's... For me, it's not an accountability thing, right? It's, I think motion creates emotion. So if you're doing stuff or you, you're around other people that are doing stuff... Mm-hmm you become better, right? You're what are what, what's the saying? You're the average of the five people you're around all day. That's so true. And you know, the other thing I do, which is an article I read sometime last year is I hide self view in zoom because they say apparently subliminally or subconsciously, it raises your stress levels. If you watch yourself all day. I, you know, I did not hear that. Um, all right. So the link and you could probably drop it in the show notes if you wanted to. Yeah, no, I, I like that. All right. So the, the one big downside to having a big zoom room like that, especially, you know, when, when it's like you and a bunch of other IT guys, and let's just, let's just assume we're all peers, right? If, if it's like a boss and subordinates, I think it would have a different vibe. But when I, I, I think that's the worst thing to do. I think. I think there needs to be separation of church and state between hierarchy of bosses and employees. Yeah, I'm I'm good with that. But but hear me out. When it's just you and a bunch of peers, egos start to get in, in the way. And you know, sometimes just being in a, a Zoom room for eight hours, just like being in a in a real room for eight hours a day, all day, every day, 
being in the office with other people, there's going to be drama. There's going to be clicks. I mean, just because I'm in. Yeah. I mean, so, so I just want to say like, just because you're in zoom with people instead of being in an office, you're still going to have all the BS to deal with. In fact, maybe even more because now there's not physical space separating you there. Well, you can just, you can turn it off. I mean, you know, you know, I, I look at the ego thing as a good thing. If I am surrounded by people who I believe are high achievers and they're doing things and want to make meaningful change for the better of their company, which will have a trickle down effect to the community at large, I think that's a good thing. Like, you know, I often joke with Brian about him being the world's first and greatest VAM, which is a value added MSP. But I like the idea. I mean, I think it's funny. Can I curse on this? Yeah, I can mark it explicit. Nah, I think it's funny as can be. Let's put it that way, right? <laughs> the whole damn thing. It sounds funny. But when you dig into what he's doing with it, I see tremendous value. Yeah, but isn't it like acronymception? Like, you have an acronym within an acronym. Yeah, like, so what? Like, so I've seen so a lot of things in my life, man. <laughs> this is where... This is where I just like, I, I like the idea, Brian. I do. I think what, what you're pitching makes sense, but you know, it's, it just sounds weird. Like how deep do we have to go to understand what he's saying to us? You don't have to, you just got to pay him the money and let him do van as a service. <laughs> Brian, what, explain to me, wh where did this van thing come from, man? So just kind of, you know, my journey of being an entrepreneur, you know, business owner and getting slapped in the face with how important it is to consider risk in your business. Right. I learned that one the hard way. Uh, it, it really just came down to my, my entrepreneurial thinking where I just kind of started looking at my clients differently, pretty much by risk. And I see them in three different buckets, you know, fully managed. I'm completely in the supply chain, co-managed. I've got like a foot in the supply chain, VAM, VAR, client managed, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, they don't even want me in the supply chain at that point, typically. Yeah. Right. So what's nice about that is there's, there's little to no risk when you're not in the supply chain. And then you start looking at all the other factors, these types of clients that don't want you in the supply chain, don't want you because they don't need you. They have their own internal IT, right? But their internal IT is drowning. I mean, they've been siloed for years. They, they got hit with COVID. They've been forced into this supporting a work from home, uh, you know, a team of employees. They, they already weren't out into the cloud like they should have been. So they're rushing to get things out to the cloud. They desperately need tools MSPs have been using for years, right? To help automate and make things more efficient. Um, and a lot of these tools are channel only. So naturally they can't buy them direct. So, do so you combine need, Do they need channel only tools though? Um, uh, it, it depends. I, I would say it depends on the case. I mean, there are plenty of enterprise tools out there that I think are much better than channel only tools. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but they also require a certain level of expertise to, to use properly. Right. And, okay. and are they going to have that on staff? Like I, when I am hiring employees, I would much rather take an engineer that's come from another MSP versus some big corporation where they've been siloed and, and been working on only X, Y, Z for the past five years. Right. So, so they're, you know, they're not as skilled in my opinion, as, as an engineer that's been working at an MSP for years. Um, so in, in some ways, even though they're enterprise, <laughs> they don't even have the skills to really work with the enterprise products. Right. So that's where some of these channel only, as long as they're, fo as long as they are focused on enterprise security, a channel only tool, you know, that's where you get kind of, uh, it gets a little concerning with some of these channel only tools that are focused on convenience and efficiency first and, and security second. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but, but so, so there's kind of that aspect, right. Where it's like, Hey, um, I'm working with fam clients. My end, the person I'm working with is an it department now, not some end user that I'm having to educate on the value of it and security. Right. So the people that we're working with on a day to day basis are just easier to work with. They speak the same language. Right. I'm, I, I get one VAM client. It equals 10 to 20 fully managed clients from a gross revenue standpoint. Right. And maybe, and probably even better profit when you consider the fact that it's fixed profit. Right. I was going to ask you, I mean, you could probably scale that faster and better than a managed type MSP client because. You're essentially a broker. Yeah. You buy something, you sell it, and you, you know, you collect your money, and then next month it comes around or the year, whatever it is. You're giving yourself the ability to grow and also bring your cost basis down because you get a, you know, if you're dealing with a company that has internal IT, they're probably 100 users or more, I would assume, for the most part. And, you know, every 100, you, licenses you buy or a couple hundred licenses you buy, your price goes down significantly. So your profit margins go up. That, and that's, uh, that's nice when your profit margins go up, especially, you know, like we alluded to earlier with, with all of this inflation, our tools have, the prices have gone up, uh, for, for most MSPs who maybe aren't as good at negotiating or or just don't have the negotiating power because they're they're not purchasing thousands of licenses. Our I have a question for you, Steve. And sure. this is something I asked you a few years ago. Because I met you shortly after I came into the MSP space, right? Mm -hmm. And I always ask you, why didn't you create a co-op? Or something like a co-op that gives that takes, you know, I'm just throwing random num numbers here without basis, but let's say get 10 MSPs that each have 100 or 200 users under management. And now you're talking about 2000 licenses. So I see that in the future of Rocket MSP, uh, possibly right now. I just, I don't want to add one more thing well, without knowing that I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing right now really well. Not necessarily for you. Like I never, like, I think, you know, you, there are many communities or mm -hmm. many groups in the MSP community 
And I think if each of those groups took a collective bargaining stance with vendors, they could probably get a lot better pricing. So you're saying partner with some other groups. I don't, I don't know who's doing what. I'm not saying right. for anyone to do anything. But what I'm saying is if you're a business owner and you are in touch with, you know, four or five other MSPs and individually your license count doesn't get a sales rep to call you back, maybe you combine and go in at the same time. You have your separate contracts, everything. But you say, hey, if you talk to me, you're actually talking to five or six other MSPs and this is what's on the table. You, you have better bargaining. It's, I think that's more of an education stance as opposed to go create a group, a buying group or something like that. Have Have you ever done anything like that? Yeah. In fact, it might have been with the people in your Zoom room, right? Usually. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that e even if you just have a group of MSPs that maybe you just like the, the owners and and you collectively all agree, hey, let's all decide to go by, I'll just say Datto. Um, when when all of you are, are trying to bargain for a deal all at once, you know, maybe maybe between all of you, you've got 5,000, 10,000, however many thousand licenses, right? Yeah, but, exactly. But one of the guys might only have two or 300. Yeah. And, and what you're doing as a whole is you're, you're bargaining for the best price possible across all of the contracts that you're about to create, which is really going to help the little guy. And that's, and that's the key to this, right? It's also the fact that you're getting separate contracts. I'm not saying go sign a contract with four other MSPs to be under one tenant, under one bill and all that other Got it. fun stuff well, that'll be, come along with it. But, you know, make a commitment to the vendor. Say, listen, you know, I'm bringing you five people. Mm -hmm. We promise that of these five, whoever comes in, we're all going to sign within a week of each other. And this is the pricing that we want or we're looking for. Because, you know, you might have a guy with 5,000 licenses, but what if the price break comes at 6,000 and the other right. four make that 1,000 or 1,500, whatever the numbers are? You know. Sure. That makes perfect sense. So... Brian, I, I don't even know what we ought to talk about this. You're a Datto partner, right? Yes. So a pillow in the background. <laughs> on his, yeah, he's he's sleeping again, is what you're implying, right? This so, is a Datto pillow in the background. Tom, you, right? Make your screen oh, bigger. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, I'm like, I see thirds of people, and it's frustrating. So yeah, it's, it's not your camera. It's I'm done. Steve. Yeah, it's me. So, um, with you being a data partner, obviously you use all these different data products for your, for your business, for your company and for your clients, but you're also a data reseller. Now we MSPs cannot buy it from you. Sad, but you can you can sell it you can resell these products like the rmm tool i think is kind of what you were alluding to where you can sell data rmm to a business where maybe they're managing a few thousand endpoints and so they don't need you to do co-managed they've got a huge team but they're looking for the right product to help them automate monitor remediate you know all the stuff right um, 
And now when they, when they buy that from you, they can go to Datto for support, but that also means that maybe they can work directly with you on some contract basis for, you know, think, think of, think of all the professional services companies that are out there that provide, uh, RMM and PSA consulting services, you're effectively able to do something similar with these VAM clients, right? Yeah. And, and that's the idea is, you know, these IT departments, most of them have never even seen a decent RMM, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's kind of, think of when RMMs first came out for MSPs. And how much MSPs gobbled that up and loved it and, and called themselves an MSP now that they have an RMM, right? <laughs> hey, I've got an RMM. Now I'm an MSP. Um, that's, it's like these IT departments. It's like the first time they've seen such a cool tool and they're just like ecstatic about it. Oh my God, you're saving me so much time, you know, and that's, it's kind of the next frontier. These internal IT departments haven't really leveled up like a lot of MSPs have from uh, the ability to manage a large amount of devices and users efficiently, and right? What are their two? What are their favorite uses for RMM? Uh, it's really monitoring, alerting, and then automation of you know scripting and and updating of software. Essentially, is really what it comes down to. And and, and really, what's funny is they're getting the pressure from their insurance companies. Is what's happening, right? So IT is finally internal IT who I, I, my personal opinion for years has, has been like, oh, they're, they're like the mechanics, right? They're like, they just keep our computers running. Like that's all we need them for, right? Mm -hmm. They keep our vehicles running, right? It's not like that now they're realizing, oh, wait, they're more than just a mechanic. Like we've got valuable information that they're protecting for us, right? Wait, we need to start getting them involved in conversations and ask like, what are they doing about security, right? And and so, you know, that's exactly what it is. We're, we're coming in and we're kind of consulting. I could do this for MSPs. I don't want to, right? But it's taking all of kind of what we've learned and, and teaching internal IT departments. We're going through with the, one of our largest co-managed clients and redoing all their help desk processes to more align with how we manage things so they can be more efficient in how they deliver their services. So even process changes, right? Looking at how they're handling things. How do they handle incidents, right? Security incidents. So a lot of that they haven't even thought about. Um, and what's cool is we're there as more of a consulting role. So there's very little ownership in, in the overall results, which means if a mistake happens or they mess something up, it's not on us, right? It's like, hey, we gave you the guidance. Um, there's very little, we're not in the supply chain. We don't have access to their info. So it's a way for me to make a large impact, uh, take on more gross revenue, deal with larger clients, so less administrative overhead, and minimize risk as I'm growing, right? <laughs> Because that's the way I look at it. If I take on a fully managed client, that's risk in several areas. Number one, I'm completely in their supply chain. Number two, I got to maintain resources internally to support that client. Right? Makes sense. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy right. you, you brought that up, Brian, because I've seen, 
I've seen a certain evolution in the MSP space. And I think the community MSPs are at an inflection point where they went from being, or we went from being the IT support guy or person to being the cybersecurity advisor and all these other things that maybe not everyone was trained to deal with. And by taking on those roles, as you said, you are accepting a whole lot of risk. And, you know, you can try to contract that risk out, but if you're telling them, hey, I'm considering your in-house IT team, to me, that's assuming a lot of risk as opposed to uh, what I would call a straight time and material job. Uh, you need software, I'll sell it to you. You need some consulting hours, I'll sell it to you. That's sold more on an as-is basis. But what do you guys think about MSPs becoming security practitioners? Now, I know it needs to be done, but how do you think it should be done? Man, this this is one where I think uh, I... I, I usually am pretty optimistic, but I think this is one of those times where I'm not. I'm super pessimistic about this because there are, think of all the guys who, like you said, buy an RMM and a PSA, uh, and maybe it's one of those all-in-one deals where, you know, it's got, it's got a lot of the, like, basic features, but it's missing so much, right? Um, and now suddenly they're calling themselves an MSP, but at the end of the day they're still doing reactive support for most of it because they haven't gone through and, you know, automated a bunch of stuff. Well, I don't think you have to automate that much anymore. And I know I'm going to catch flack for this, right? Well, okay. So I'm talking about like the automated remediation. Like, you know, if Brian, you still have a bunch of remediation set up in data, right? You, Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it changes, you know, you're not, you're not doing a lot on servers as much as you used to, because more and more is going into the cloud, but you know, people still do stupid stuff with their computers or, or whatever else. And I just look at it as you, you have to constantly revise what's happening in the RMM to, to continue to flow and act as an additional couple of employees for you. Well, I mean, you've got to have tool champions, right? On mm -hmm. your team, someone who's willing to take ownership for that tool and be revisiting it to make sure that you're using it to, it's, to, to make sure it's effective and, and working properly, especially if it's a security tool, right? You can put a security tool in and have a false sense of security thinking, Hey, I've got that layer protected now. And little do you know, cause no one took ownership on really understanding the tool and implementing it properly. It's not even configured, right? And it's a, there's a complete gap wide open. But as a as an MSP who's taking on an RMM, let's say for the sake of argument, it's going to be implemented properly, best practices are followed, and take the negativity out of it, right? Let's just say you're doing a really good job. If an MSP is doing a really solid job on the onboarding and there are no local admins on devices for users, and maybe put in a uh, a PAM a PAM system or a PAM platform. What are you really remediating on a day to day basis? Okay, so your argument makes a lot of sense, but 
again, this goes back to if there's a bunch of people that are calling themselves MSPs that are that are not doing it super great. That's that's where I get hung up. I think that's an education issue. And I think, you know, like what you're doing here, this is something that's geared for MSPs is help them understand. And I could be completely wrong here. I'm not saying my way is the way to do anything, right? I'm just a ditch digger. So if you really take your time and go through an onboarding process that really remediates the bad in an environment, your, your signal to noise ratio is going to be very favorable to you. I mean, Brian, you're, I think you're pretty familiar with my onboarding process. I think I shared it with you, the paragraph. It's maybe a dozen things. And the beautiful thing about the way that's structured in my mind, and again, I'm no expert here, is that I can offer that onboarding um, skew to any client without even having a conversation with them because it hits on everything that needs to be done. I think you need, you need to take a nuke and pave approach. Like when you go in, just get it to zero, take it to where you need it to be and go from there. And that's, that's a perfect world, right? That's a client that's willing to rip and replace a certain amount of their infrastructure, right? I think that's a, that's a, that really comes down to your sales cycle. You know, one of the things I tell prospective clients is your first two weeks with me is going to be miserable. You're going to hate me. You're going to regret hiring me, but I promise you. After those two weeks or sooner, you're going to forget I'm even there, except when you have to cut a check to me every month. But the reality of that, Shiva, is for for every 10 leads you get, right, how many of them say Minus yes 10? to you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, so So for the average MSP who's trying to grow and isn't saying to no, isn't saying no to as many clients as you are, they don't have that luxury all the time. I if I could share my thoughts real quick on where I think the underlying issue is, and it's the fact that the ultimately the cybersecurity landscape has moved faster than the education of the people supporting it, right? The, the average person supporting it did not keep up with it, right? And so you run into a, a couple situations, one like mine where I feel the brunt right? Of not keeping up. And then I have to quickly pivot and, and change and get into that. Right. I, I had a major event that caused me to, to, to do that. Right. I, in a way I look at it as, as, as a benefit that I had back in the day that forced me to do things that I probably wouldn't have done if that event wouldn't have happened. Right. Um, here's the issue. You've got an existing client base, cybersecurity landscapes change. You're behind how do you go to your client and tell them, Hey, we need to increase security, but even I'm not sure what to do yet. Right. Let's work together. You're worried about losing that client. You're worried about that client going, Oh, well maybe I need to find someone else that already knows about security. So then the average MSP tries to wing it. Right. They're mm -hmm. like, Oh, I don't want my client to know that I'm behind on security, but I, I, I need to make them think that I'm staying up with security. So let me go buy all these tools that make me feel like I'm staying up with security, sell them to my client and get a false sense of security without really understanding what needs to be done, without really understanding what Shiva just explained, 
where there's a certain approach you could take that's a lot easier, but it takes a level of education to know that approach, right? I think what you just said is when an IT provider or a company is having a, what I would call a coming to Jesus moment, you understand your situation, you understand where you need to go. And I think the MSPs that are going to survive the onslaught of ransomware and all these attacks are the ones that are going to tell their clients, listen, we need to do these things. We can do this, this, and this for you, and it will help you. Or they say, we don't know what we're doing. And maybe we need to bring in someone that practices cybersecurity, leave the support with us, bring in an MSSP. Uh, almost like how doctors have different subspecialties. You have your internal medicine, your cardiologist, and whatever. Maybe that's the way it needs to go. If you can't do it all in-house, I think. That's what I ended up doing. I, I mean, I went the path thinking I was going to be an MSSP, you know, especially now how hard it is to find good talent. That's the last thing I want to be, right? Uh, Consider the risk, Brian. Well, that too. I mean, I, I, I'm in a situation now where we partner with a SOC, right? That That's because they're that, actionable. That we rely on. Like when I, when I'm, when I'm, when I have a question about, Hey, are we making the right move with security or even a new tool? Like I've got this process now where it's like, Hey, if we're going to use this new tool, let's run it by our sock. Let's see what they think about the tool. Let's see if they want to, if they can do a, some sort of red team on it for us. Right. You chose a good sock. And yeah. I, no, I, I call, I, I know one of your favorite words for them is that they're actionable, which they are. But I think that makes the biggest difference, right? Yeah. You, you can lean on them and they have red team things for you and shown you maybe where you should or shouldn't invest your resources. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a sock that's willing to take ownership, right? Put themselves in your shoes and, and be like, hey, this is what we would do if we were you versus some random, you know, a security engineer that's just building support calls, right? So when I want to, I want to phrase this that, that way I make sure I'm clear. So when it comes to security, where should these MSPs that are maybe just a little behind, where should they look? You mind if I take a shot at this one? Yeah. I think the MSP, the traditional mm -hmm. MSP, who's been focused on support, helping mm -hmm. clients, should focus on good antivirus selection, mm -hmm. good email protection, and really hone their best practices of a Azure AD tenant and an Active Directory tenant in terms of privileged access. And I think to a certain degree, that's where the vast majority of the MSPs should stay. No local admin. No local admin, but you know, <laughs> I think I think once you get into the EDR side of things, EDR is a really fantastic spending exercise for nothing because a lot of people who buy it do nothing with it. They just think they're going to get this protection. But so I think they think they're getting enhanced protection. Right, but they're just getting better logging, right? On their endpoints. Right. But I think, I think what happens is, you know, when we see EDR and MTR and, and all of these things, like, 
I, I know, I know that there are different, different things. I know they're different right. things, but I think, I think that there's a little bit of uh, disillusionment when it comes to what people are going to get from their tools. Hell, I, I did it for years, man. I, I kept switching my, my RMN or my PSA because but you I, were doing market research for Rocket MSP. That's exactly what I was doing. No, but years, years before Rocket MSP was a thing, like I, I was an idiot. I just kept switching tools thinking like, oh, well, if I switch to this one, they're going to have all this stuff already set up and taken care of. Why would they do my job for me? I think that's a lot of that is how they market their tools. And the, the one thing I, I, mm -hmm. I forgot to say with at least my view on MSPs and cybersecurity, I think an MSP can skip the EDR part if they're going to an MTR type platform. Yes. And uh, Black Point has a fantastic platform. Sophos has a good platform. And, and you know, some of the other guys, uh, Sentinel One has Vigilance. Where if you're going to those platforms, and yes, you use their EDR so they can collect the data and they can, you know, as Brian would say, become actionable. But I think when an MSP tries to say that they're going to monitor all the logs, that's a heavy lift. Yeah, we don't even offer EDR. Um, it's just MDR, right? Because otherwise you're just creating more noise that but now that's you're... with your MDR offering, you're, right? you're, Yeah. Yeah. E EDR, all you're doing is creating more noise that you're beholden to fixing, really. Yep. I mean, it, it, it's it's turning up evidence where if an incident happens and you don't react properly, there's better evidence that you didn't react properly. And right? the risk is yours. Yeah. So I, I, I think if we're going to keep it basics on security for, for MSPs, I'll answer it two ways. One way is like no local admin, MFA, good email security product, good antivirus and MDR. Like that Kaseya event that happened last year, I immediately sent out quotes to all my clients saying, Hey, the majority of these events happen after hours. We are not a 24 seven security company. This 24-7 SOC MDR service can be that, mm -hmm. right? You know, we need this to know what's going on outside normal business hours, even during business hours, really. That but, takes a lot of courage to do. Not a lot of, I don't know many people that would put themselves across the sword and say, listen, we can't do this. This is not our thing. It's not our cup of coffee, but hey, here's a service you can use. And, and that's the problem I see in the industry and why I can agree with Steve being pessimistic about MSPs getting into security, right? It's because they're not willing to, to admit what they do and don't know because they're afraid of losing a client, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. That and there's always a race to the bottom price-wise. There's always going to be someone yeah. who will take the job for a factor of X less than you. And do a piss poor job. And you know what? There are instances where <clears throat> they charge more and still do a piss poor job. <clears throat> All right. I want to change gears a little bit. Um, I want to talk about, I want to talk about something that's been really impacting me uh, because I'm, I'm a worrier. Let's talk about this. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to call it what I think it is the war in Ukraine. Now, I don't want to talk about how big of an asshole Putin is or, or any of that stuff. Who's right? Who's wrong? What they should do? 
that's not what this podcast is about. What I want to talk about is what do you think, and this is speculation, what do you think uh, this is going to do to not only our, um, really, cat, to not only our um, security around the U.S., uh, but to everything. Like, you know, I feel like some of this inflation that we're having right now is definitely caused by this conflict, uh, you know, gas prices and whatnot. Um, what, what, what do you guys think is, is going to be the real outcome here? Uh, outcome. I mean, I, I, I would, uh, I, I, ever since I got hit by the ransomware event, I've been a strong proponent, proponent of, we are in an information war, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like the thing, the war in Ukraine's only heightened that because when you've got conflict, you've got different ways to battle that conflict, right? You could go with physical war, which really isn't too popular, right? Or you can go with cybersecurity warfare. Mm-hmm. The tricky thing about cybersecurity warfare is it's not necessarily the government versus the government. In a lot of cases, it's civilians versus civilians. Right. And and that's and, the part that that's making me nervous. Like, have you guys seen anything, any uptick? I've seen an uptick, but one thing I've noticed is a lot less critical infrastructure is being hit. I think after JBS and after Colonial, the ransomware groups understood that there will be government involvement if you go after that. So I think mm. if you look at some of the automotive hacks and some of the other incidents in the last two months, even they the attack chain of i'm sorry the supply chain of critical infrastructure is being hit and i think that could be more damaging because that will raise prices and inflation to points that are not sustainable and i think we're just in a time where <clears throat> cyber warfare is unrestricted warfare and and one thing i want to add my tinfoil hat is on right now part of me wonders like how much of this is staged? Okay. Hear, hear me out. Okay. I'm not, I, that's way above my pay, right? I, I, I mean, hear, hear me out though. Like, you know, there's, there's the arguments where, you know, supposedly Will Smith slapping the shit out of Chris Rock. Supposedly that was staged. I don't think it was because the, the way Chris Rock reacted to that is I think how I've reacted to uh, when some people have come on my podcast and, and just flipped the table on me. Um, what episode was that? I had several. I think it went on me. I don't think it was you. I think it was others. Um, and so, uh, you know, but, but how much of this, like, is, is this like, the, some secret cabal's way of getting everyone to stop worrying about COVID because now we're worried about Ukraine because I think it's doing a good job. I don't know if it's that, but I will say there's always going to be something. There is. And just like we said earlier with the Zoomers, like there's always something. Yeah, it, it, it's an it is what it is kind of thing, right? It's you, as a IT person, I do the best that I can 
to educate my customers and protect them to the ability that I can. And if I can't, I outsource it. I, I don't sit here saying, hey, I'm going to go buy a SIM, collect logs, and do the threat hunting that not a thousand, but like 10 other companies can do really, really well. So I'm going to, I'm going to get a little philosophical, philosophical, philosophizing. Is this still early, Brian? Do we need, do we need red caps? Philly needs red caps. Philosophical. Philosophical. (laughs) That's the word I was looking for. Um, really, I think, um, any organization, no matter what it is, nonprofit, government, private, public, you get too big. Um, there's always, there's, there's always a percentage of corruption in any organization. And the bigger you are, while that percent might stay the same, it equals more corruption. Right. And so I, I think really when, what it comes down to is we need to get back to like decentralizing things. We need, we need new sources of truth for things, right? You we need in your sources of truth. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. We like, we, we don't really have valid sources of truth anymore. Right. It's like, you got to question everything you read now. No, determine, the, like, there's a lot of confirmation bias out there. I think, I mean, anyone can, yeah. anything that justifies <laughs> their viewpoint, like, you know, and that's just, that's what happens when information and knowledge is not gated the way it used to be, right? But it, mm-hmm. even back then, that was still controlling the narrative, I think, is what you're getting at. Um, yeah. Well, it's not, so, I, I, sorry, so, like, decentralized internet is supposed to be the next big thing, <clears throat> right? Where you've got a track record and you can go back and prove whether or not something's true or not, right? Things just can't be changed. You know, I think blockchain is going to help with that. So right? Going to make Wikipedia read only? Did they? So wait, did they? That vulnerability they found with Ethereum a couple months ago, where you can mint your own unlimited Ethereum. Is that thing? Uh, we do? Yeah, it was uh, maybe two months ago. I mean, you know, like how did I miss out on that? People are talking about the blockchain as though it's the end all be all of security, but dude, if it was made by man, it can be undone by man. Or yeah, any, anything that can be basement in the UK. Anything that can be locked can be unlocked. Right. However, if you've got uh, a good enough audit trail, you can at least figure out who unlocked it, right? If you find it, right? I mean, there's there's a crypto uh, platform that lost what was it six hundred million in the last? I think it was in the news a couple of days ago. And the platform didn't know there was a breach or a theft. They only found out because a user went into their wallet and tried to withdraw and funds weren't there. You would hope a crypto platform would have better auditing. Yeah. So it boils down to people putting more emphasis, I think, on security than features. But security doesn't sell, unfortunately. It it does in the in the VAM space. <laughs> I think it does to an informed consumer, right? Yeah. yeah. Like you're going to, for every VAM client that you bring on board, I would say it's at least a, you know, a two to one ratio of companies saying, nah, we're not going to spend that kind of money because insurance will take care of it or they feel there are other ways that it can be mitigated. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about scale. 
when when you guys started your companies, it was just you, right? Yeah. Okay. So I I want to I want to learn from you guys because how many employees do you have, Shiva? Six. Uh, Brian, how many We're employees small. do you? Have? Uh, eleven. Okay. I I, so, I was at twenty five at one point in time. And that's okay. The the point is, it's more than just you, right? So in order for your business to grow, you can't be the one doing all the things. You need to, you need to start letting go of some responsibilities and, and delegating that stuff to others. But you have to have others to delegate it to. And if... If I just go hire a tech so I can stop answering phones or, or whatever that looks like, right? Um, if I just go hire a person that they need to, they need to have a job to do. So like what, what comes first, the documentation, the role that you want them to do or the person. Are we talking hypothetical kumbaya here or? The realistic what what answer and you, expectation. What have you found, like after after your years of trial and error, what have you found as the right way for you to be able to scale? I started as a VAR. So for me, it was finding the client and then hiring contractors to sub out to them. So I had the talent piece covered. But I think if you're a one-man MSP, I think you should probably figure out what your core competency is. Is it being the tech or is it being the operational person? And when you figure out which of those two things you are, hire the other one. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I would tell people that if you're a one-man band or a one-man shop, create an email address or an alias for every department in your business. This way, when you start shedding responsibility, that e it's not your you know, it's not your email address on everything. It's you know if it's accounts payable, it's say ap at domain .com. That is fantastic advice. What about you, Brian? So all I look at it is kind of stages. There's um, of stickiness. <laughs> stages of stickiness. I mean, when you start out as a one man band, you're doing everything, including the sales. And if you get to a point where you can start hiring people, typically that means you're not too bad at sales. Right. Um, I, I, I question small MSPs that hire salespeople. You know, I, I don't feel like a, a, a random salesperson even knows how to sell MSP services. So that would probably be one of the last roles I would recommend hiring as an owner of an MSP, assuming you, you like sales and can do it. But, but really the two levels of stickiness I see are stickiness with your clients, stickiness with your team. And those are the two that I got past that I never want to go back to again. And, and the idea is the clients don't feel like they need you involved in everything, right? It's not a situation where the minute they feel like things aren't going the way they think they should, they want to bring you in all of a sudden, right? Oh, let's get Brian involved in this, you know, to make sure it's happening correctly. 
getting past that, right? Getting your, your clients to trust a team of people is like goal number one. And so if you're the tech all the time, that's going to be harder to remove the stickiness, right? So that's another thing you shouldn't hang on to forever as an owner is being the tech. Um, but what if you're better at being a tech than you are at being operations or sales? Maybe you should start a business. Well, still, then at that, I, I think that's what I think you can hire that. I think you find out what you are and hire out the other parts, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I would even say when you're that small outsource, don't hire internally because the minute you hire internally, you have to manage that employee and make sure they're meeting their goals and expectations. And, and that's, that takes time. So, uh, like Osprey is a company I know, uh, that will literally, you know, manage a salesperson for you. If you wanted to go that route, you hire a salesperson, they, they help you find a salesperson and then they manage it for you. All the expectations, like the salesperson answers to them and then you pay them an outsource fee to do that. Right. So it's, it's almost like a temp agency. Yep. Salesperson is a service. And, and, and I'm even a fan, I'm even a fan of outsourced help desk. Um, when you're really small, because you need to have a, a quick response, right? You can't, if you're one man and you get too many calls at once, you need someone there to back you up. Um, so the thing about that is I've, I've seen outsourced help desk bite MSPs in the pale end. And I think, yeah. I think it's for one of two reasons. Uh, reason number one documentation and SOPs on the MSP side of things is extremely lacking. And when, when that's lacking, then the outsourced people don't really have a, here's how to do things. And then number two, I've actually seen where, you know, the outsourced company, they've, they've got like their, they've got their method, you know, maybe they've got a dispatcher that answers the phone. And then from there, it gets pushed out to a tech. And sometimes it's a call back. Sometimes it's the same call. However, that looks right. Um, however, when, when the, the client reaches out to you, especially when you're small and maybe you're just working out of, you know, home and you don't have to go anywhere. So you're just, you know, you're just sitting around at your desk, working on whatever, scrolling Facebook, and a call comes in. You answer it immediately, and you just start working the problem. And and when you do that, you're you're missing a few steps. You know, you're you're not creating the ticket and doing all the things that one of these outsourced companies are doing. And what you're doing is you're actually setting yourself up for customer dissatisfaction down the road because when you start adding some of these some of these necessary you know things that add a little extra time uh the customers that you've kept along the way are going to see this as a as a negative because now it takes longer for service to start well, how much longer is it going to take? Even if you don't want to create the ticket right then and there, keep a notepad on your desk and write, and you're, you know, your start time, well, what you're doing in shorthand form, then you can go back and create the ticket. You operate out of, out of New York. You, you know what people are like around there. Well, that's what yeah, I'm they, saying. Like, I, 
this, you know. And that works great for you. But when you start outsourcing, like, let's see you outsource, outsource to Benchmark 365 or Mission Control or one of these other places, right? Like, they have an SOP they have to follow. So but why would I? My opinion on this is why would I outsource my help desk if I'm putting the time in on the onboarding and the tool selection? Because if I'm not having to remediate much of anything, what do I need to outsource for? Well, it goes to setting the expectations, right? And that's what you're talking about, Shiva, right there, is you've set the expectations up front that to work with me, these things have to change, right? Right. And then that causes you, that creates a situation where there's less help desk needs down the road, right? Um, I think to Steve's point, setting the expectation with the client that they don't just call up and get service right away. And that's a shift we made uh, beginning of last year where we, we set the expectation with our clients now where if you call us, you're not going to get immediate support. The only thing that's going to happen when you call us is we're going to create your ticket for you. And how we're going to create your ticket is the same way you could create it on your own. We're going to go to the client portal, impersonate you, ask you all the same questions on the form, fill it out, submit a ticket. Because I love that. There, we can't guarantee the, the, that the right skilled resource is going to be the one to pick up the phone to help you with your issue. And we don't want the wrong skilled person to feel like they need to be the one to help you just because they're the one who picked up the phone. And then all of a sudden that turns into something down the road that's a bigger issue we got to deal with. So the, the step is get the request in, understand what the request is, triage it to the right skilled technician. If it is an emergency, we'll get back to you right away, right? But it isn't a situation where when you have an emergency, you call up and get immediate support. It's always create the ticket first. If, if, it, and our mantra is if it's not in a ticket, it doesn't exist. So like you email one of our engineers directly and, and that falls through the cracks. You can't get mad at us. That was your fault. Right. So, so you set, so, 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 so to your point, Steve, SOPs and to your point, Shiva, setting expectation of this is how we operate. If you don't follow this, you're not going to get a good quality of service. You're going to be frustrated. And that's not on us. That's on you because you're not following how we operate to be able to give you that good service. Right? No, I agree. I mean, but that's that's on the MSP to create that yeah. process too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think we've all been in situations where we've either been taken out by another MSP or we've taken out other MSPs to go for a client. And I know... I've probably learned more from losing a client based on their exit process than that. That has helped me in the long run. Well, and the other issue you have is you have the, the smaller MSPs that look at what I just explained as a negative and they, they might go in and say, Oh, w when you call us, we'll pick you, we'll pick up the phone and help you right away. You don't have to create a ticket and wait for someone to call you back. So if they're doing that, then they're setting the expectations the opposite. Now they're making those clients extra sticky. But to they where they have scale, to, right? Well, it's not scalable. Exactly. So, so to Steve's point, there's MSPs out there shooting themselves in the foot with something that they feel is a value add that really prevents them from scaling. So I have, uh, 
One final question I'm going to ask, and then we're actually going to record a members-only thing about pricing. So I have one final question. I'm going to start with Brian. Uh, what is one thing that your company is doing for clients that you didn't expect? Um, dealing with their cybersecurity insurance forms as much as we are. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that that's always a, a, a dance for us, right? Because I, we don't want to fill out the form for them. Cause then you're like taking on liability, you know, but I, I guess that that's the, that's the area where it's like, every time that comes up, I, I send it across my desk to make sure it gets handled properly. Cause I feel like we don't have a process in place where I could depend on my team, making sure that it gets handled properly every time. Sure. We write a memo. We never fill out the form for them cause we don't want them just turning it around. Yep. We write a memo on letterhead referencing the form and it says, you know, this is to the best of our knowledge and based on services we provide. And if it's some, if there's a question on the form that we either don't know the answer to or we don't provide, we state that on there. But where we do answer in the affirmative, we provide the backing up controls or information needed. Yeah, the whole compliance side of things, right? It, that's, that's new. And we've decided not to get into that. I mean, we'll, we'll map to controls. We'll do our own like internal risk assessment, but we, if we're the ones providing security, we don't want to always be also be the ones telling the client they're secure. So if they want a green check mark that they're compliant or that they're meeting some set of controls, we tell them here's our self-assessment, but this isn't a green check mark. A green check mark is going to be done by a third party that comes in and verifies everything. That's You're going to pay an auditor. Yeah. Collect a lot of money. <laughs> and have you considered opening a third party auditing company that you refer all your, that, you know? They actually have rules in CMC built in that you can't do that. I like, they don't. They, because version one, yeah, they cluster, yeah, with the self assess with with the, the assessment. And the newest version, yeah, the the first version, it's like you could do it all. Yeah, you could, <laughs> you could have a member of the CMMC council open their own assessor and come and assess you, get paid. Yeah, fantastic. So, so Shiva, how about you? What is one thing that your company is doing for clients that you didn't expect? I don't know. I think. My mindset with managed services has always been, if you're going to do it, charge a premium for the girlfriend experience. So inappropriate. <laughs> you know, there's not much that we won't do for our clients that's in our scope. Like, you know, if we need to show up at 5 a.m., we'll do it. And we're not going to, if they're a fully managed customer, we're not going to bill them for it. Because that's why they're paying X dollars per user per month. Now, I, I, I like that. I, I like that a lot. I don't know that I'd call it the same thing, but I like I, it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add to something kind of 
uh, off of sh- what Shiva said, but something I didn't realize we'd be doing is literally firing clients. And I heard the best thing I'm going to, I think Robin Robbins said it, right? If, if I'm laying in bed at night thinking about you and we're not sleeping together, that's a problem, <laughs> right? And so if I've got a client I'm laying in bed at night worried about, you know, then that's a problem that we need to get rid of that. Um, so, you know, it's that idea too, right? It's like, be selective with your clients. Shiva is already doing that just with his requirements up front, right? It's like, hey, I know I, I need a client that's going to understand the value in IT and security. And I know that if I require this up front, that's going to weed out all the ones that don't, right? I will say that my close rate is probably one out of 100 on new clients for fully managed. And it may not be that bad, but it's close because it's a hard pill to swallow for someone to come in and say they want full control. Not a lot of companies are willing to give that up, much less pay for it. Well, thank you guys for popping on here. I really appreciate it. Brian Weiss with iTech Solutions. Shiva. Shiva. <laughs> with Continuum. Uh, I know your last name. I just wanted to be funny. Uh, if anyone has questions for them, uh, go check out their websites. Continuum with a K dot com, right? Yeah. And then Brian's is iTech solutions.com if i recall i i take dash solutions.com number one bam do you own number one bam.com yet i should huh by the end of this podcast you should <laughs> yeah because i assure you i'm gonna go register right now and i'll sell it to you for a real low price and it'll be in perpetuity monthly that's wonderful i learned that from shiva <laughs> you know, one I'm thing sure. I would, one thing I would say, and I don't know, maybe you can cut this out and put it into the paid only version is start doing one year contracts with your clients. With the way things are changing, inflation, tooling cost, give yourself that opportunity to renegotiate at the end of the year. And you know what? Mm-hmm. That might not be a client you want for three years. Really may not. Clients are weird, man. Leadership change is a change. 